Welcome to the event uh, titled Che, Man, Myth, and Legacy. My name is Paolo Drino. Uh, I'm a historian uh, based at the Institute of the Americas here at UCL and have done some work on Che in the past, looking in particular at um, Che's travels in Latin America in his youth. Uh, but my role today is uh, that of chair this fantastic panel. Um, so as you probably know, 50 years ago today, uh, Che Guevara was killed in Bolivia. And many have argued that on that day, Ernesto Guevara, the man, died and Che, the myth, was born. And some people think that Che was a hero, others that he was a villain. However, everyone, I hope, would agree that Che had a profound influence on the history of Latin America and indeed of the whole world, and that that is a very good reason to reflect today on Che, the man, myth, and legacy. Um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Emmy Morris uh, at the back for convening the event, and Oscar Martinez, who's also at the back, for his excellent event management, and also uh, the Institute of the Americas for supporting the event. Uh, we have six first-class speakers, which is wonderful, but it also means that I'm going to have to be brutal with my timekeeping, so apologies for that. Uh, each speaker has ten minutes uh, in the first instance, and then there will be a second round for discussion. Uh, so I'm going to introduce the speakers very uh, quickly, very briefly. Uh, Professor Dirk Kraut from uh, Utrecht University, his most recent book is Cuba and Revolutionary Latin America, An Oral History. Uh, Professor Kraut is the author of many books on Latin America, uh, on a number of different countries, including Peru, the Central American Republics, and most recently Cuba. And he's also written uh, or co-edited uh, several widely cited studies on violence in uh, Latin America. Profe Professor Elizabeth Dahl, um, University of Southampton. Uh, her most recent book is titled Cuban Lives, What Difference Did a Revolution Make? Uh, like Professor Kraut, Professor Dorr has authored several books on a number of countries, including Peru and Nicaragua, though her more, more recent work is on the oral histories of the Cuban Revolution. Richard Galt is a journalist and historian. He has written uh, major books on a wide range of topics, from Latin American guerrillas, the history of Cuba, and the history of the British Empire. He is, as far as I know, the only member of the panel to have met Che Guevara, and uh, he was a Guardian's correspondent in Bolivia in 1967. Dr. Helen Yaf uh, from the LSE is uh, author of Che Guevara, The Economics of Revolution, a very important and original interpretation of uh, Che's economic thinking. Uh, the book has been translated impressively into Korean, Spanish, Indonesian, and Turkish. And her most more recent work has focused on youth uh, activism. Dr. James Scorer from the University of Manchester is uh, the author of uh, City in Common, Culture and Community in Buenos Aires. And he has written extensively a number of aspects of Latin American visual culture, from film to photography, comics, and graphic novels. And he's also uh, the author of a seminal study on graphic biographies of Che Guevara. 
And last but not least, Nikos Suslus is uh, uh, now a former master's student here at UCL and also the author of one of the best undergraduate dissertations that I had the pleasure to supervise um, that uh, looked at the role of violence in Che's revolutionary thought and praxis. So I'll stop there and hand over to Doug. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for the invitation. Thank you, uh, Emily, for your guidance. I know I have 10 minutes. Uh, I'll try to make three points. F first, uh, his drive and his restlessness. Second, uh, a comment afterwards, uh, why most of the revolutionary guerrilla movements in the 60s and 70s failed. And then uh, a smaller point about the chase afterlife. Uh, it, it's, it's, well, I hope I can, yes, see. Uh, as a child, uh, Che Guevara was a, dare, a daredevil, and uh, many of who knew him as an adult, well, Richard is the only one uh, here present who knew him, uh, portray him as fearless. Uh, he was uh, a maverick and kicked against all sacred codes he met or uh, he looked for. And he was restless. Uh, he probably found only a stable home during the first years of his Cuban marriage, and then he was half of the time underway fighting or negotiating. Uh, being a doctor and after uh, graduating as a doctor and after several travels, uh, he joined the ranks of the political tourists in Guatemala uh, uh, during the government of Colonel Arbenz and after the coup against uh, Arbenz, uh, he took refuge at the Argentina embassy together with many Guatemalans and foreign sympathizers exiled to Mexico City, uh, he befriended Raul and Fidel and joined the, the guerrilla where he finished as an instant military hero. Uh, in, the, in the 60s and in addition to his many political and military function, he was a kind of roofing ambassador of the Cuban revolution uh, and had admissions to the Soviet Union, China, uh, the founding members of the, the, the non-aligned countries uh, and he established ties with, 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 with African countries. Patience and tact were not his most striking virtues. He was, in fact, uncompromising, and his sardonic comments didn't make him many friends in the uh, Eastern European Socialist bloc. Uh, a restless bohemian and traveler, and now a senior member uh, uh, of the Cuban uh, cabinet, opted for a more adventurous life. It is a point of discussion why he first went to, to, to the Congo and then to Bolivia, but I'll leave, leave that for the discussions and probably there are more competent speakers than I about this question. Here I quote the members of the Departamento America I interviewed after the catastrophic intervention in the Congo, Oswaldo Cárdenas, one of the, the people who exfiltrated uh, the, the, the Cuban guerrilleros reflects on the fact that most of the combatants knew that their mission in uh, both in, in, in Congo and in Bolivia uh, would end badly and could never uh, be successful. They uh, accompanied Che Guevara because of personal, personal loyalty. And when Guevara told them that they were free to leave and that he would stay, they preferred unanimously to continue 
fighting. And when he went to Bolivia, he was already 90, uh, uh, 39 years old, uh, much urged by his increasing age as Manuel Pinheiro, uh, who prepared most of, of Chivara's uh, trips, and especially the trips uh, in Bolivia. Uh, the 15 Cuban members of, of, of his mission were experienced veterans, some of them uh, uh, commandantes during the, uh, in the rebel army, uh, vice ministers and members of the Comité Central. Then the second point, uh, uh, Guevara's ideas about guerrilla fighting. Uh, Guevara's ideas about rural guerrilla didn't stand poor for practice. Time and again, regular armies defeated uh, the rural insurgents, generally, of course, after barbaric counter-insurgency campaigns. But the reality uh, about guerrilla and guerrilla sympathy in Latin America proved to be different. Uh, in Cuba, uh, in Cuba, the guerrilleros uh, could speak Spanish with their local peasants, with their guajillos. But uh, in Central America and in the Andean countries, where much of the, uh, many of the guerrilla movement originated, uh, many of the persons they tried to, to, to protect were non-Spanish speakers, uh, uh, speaking one of the, the, the many Maya languages, or the, the Quechua dialects, or Guarani, or, or Aymara, and the centuries-long segregation, but also the usos y costumbres, the ideas behind the community level, the communal uh, way of living, uh, etc., made it difficult to trust a person they didn't knew. And if there was one institution in Latin America who knew the indigenous people, it was the army. They recruited their, 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 uh, their soldiers, uh, and in fact, uh, many of the, the, the ex-soldiers uh, uh, became uh, in their villages uh, peasant leaders because they were alphabet, uh, they, 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 were, uh, uh, they, they learned the job. They uh, could speak, they could write, and they could read. And uh, in many of the, 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 the guerrilla regions in Peru, in Bolivia, in Central America, uh, even part of Mexico, uh, the only institution that the local population knew was the army. The army doctors, the army nurses, the army lawyers, the army engineers. Uh, and for them, the, the army was the only, and maybe it is exaggerating that I speak, legitimate representative of the state they knew. And all other aliens were unknown and distrusted. My third point is, is, is Che Guevara's afterlife. The, the political uh, significance of Guevara's death was enormous. Instantly, Che Guevara was transmuted from a military hero and a military writer to uh, a kind of, 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 of civil saint. Uh, in Cuba, he was uh, uh, proclaimed to be the guerrero heroico, and it was the beginning of a cult that uh, uh, ended in a kind of secular religion, uh, in part spontaneous and in part induced by the state. 
seremos como che uh, is and was the, the motto of every good human communist. In Bolivia, in Central America, in Chile, in Peru, Che Guevara was also transformed in a popular saint as San Anestito in Bolivia, as a Jesus-like Guevara on his deathbed in Chile, where he was invoked by many liberation theologians as the proto-Christian, although he was an atheist, uh, uh, as an example of Marxist Christian martyrdom uh, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, Nicaragua, uh, in, the, in Nicaragua, the Sandinista recruits of the guerrilla movement suddenly declared uh, an oath uh, of loyalty before fatherland, history, and Che Guevara. Uh, the influence of Che Guevara, and now I'm finishing, uh, in the foundational period of most of all guerrilla movement is, 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 is unquestionable, uh, with the only exception maybe of, 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 of Shining but all Latin American guerrilla movement paid their tribute to Che Guevara. Uh, and uh, 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 even now when you, you're walking in, in, at the University, uh, the National University of, of Bogota, you can see two enormous uh, portraits at the entrance of the University Auditorium, one of Camilo Torres and the other one of Che Guevara Camilo Torres, the founding priest of the Eirin Guerrilla and Che Guevara, the, 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 the icon of uh, revolutionary thinking. talk about Che Guevara the man. I uh, conducted with a lot of Cuban researchers an oral history project in Cuba over the last 15 years. We interviewed 120 people and one of the people who I call uh, Paola, that is a pseudonym, had a very vivid memory of meeting Che and it was very important to her whole life story because we interviewed her several times over a number of years and she had forgotten that she had told us this story before so she kept telling us this story. Uh, and it was, she didn't embellish it. She told it almost the same way each time. So I first interviewed her in 2005 when she was 70 years old. The purpose of the interview had nothing to do with Che. Uh, we asked all of the people we were interviewing who were selected sort of more or less randomly uh, across the island if they would tell us their life stories. Uh, and this story about Che came up very, very important in her life. In the early 1960s, so the Che that I will be describing is uh, a foreigner in Cuba, as you'll see. She regarded him as a foreigner. He was a commandante, certainly. He was a doctor. And he was visiting a biometric uh, research project, scientific project, that was being carried out at the University of Havana. They were measuring variability in body types. They were measuring the size of the cranium and the size of the nose and the size of the hands and to write research papers on dividing people into different somatic types. I asked Paola what the origin of this project was, because it sounded pretty uh, dicey, uh, and she said that the advisors had come from the Soviet Union. Uh, so one day, uh, the head of the project was told that Che was about to visit. In preparation for his visit, the women scientists 
spent a day decorating the laboratory with flowers and ribbons and all kinds of things and drafted one of a very pleasant uh, sort of welcoming speech with all the kind of pleasantries that Cubans are brilliant at. When Che arrived, and this is according to Paola's memory of, a, of an incident 40 years before, he brushed aside the welcoming speech. He said he didn't want to hear any pleasantries. He didn't have time for any of that. And then, and this is a quote from Paola, he said something gross, uncouth. I don't even want to repeat it here. He told the researchers that instead of decorating the lab with flowers, we should have been doing our work. And if we had time to decorate the lab with flowers, we didn't have enough work to do. He tried to make it sound like a joke, but it wasn't. We didn't take it as a joke. We felt he had grossly insulted us. That's the way he was. He was cold. I'll put it more bluntly. He was insupportable. He was insufferable. Uh, this is the sardonic Che that I think uh, Paolo or uh, Derek referred to. Then he looked around the room and he pointed <coughs> to me. She was the youngest in the room and she was probably the only one who wasn't a very white Cuban. And he asked me, usted, in the formal, uh, what are you doing here? I felt he was belittling me. I felt he wanted to know what I, why I was occupying a place at the university. You can, Im you can imagine how terrible I felt. Anyway, I wasn't accustomed to a man speaking to me like that. I looked at him straight in the eye and I said in the same kind of hard voice that he used to me, I work here. And I, he could see I was terribly offended and he laughed a little bit uh, because he recognized that he had said something wrong. As you know, this is Paola speaking. As you know, the Argentines are known for their rudeness. <laughs> they have that problem. They're not the way we are. We are different. We're friendly and warm. And then he ignored us women. Now, if this had been Fidel, he would have come around. He would have chatted with us. He would have asked our names. He would have asked a little bit about who we were and what we were doing there. But not Che. That wasn't his way. He would arrive, whether it was a laboratory or a factory. I remember a time when matches were terrible. You just couldn't get them to light. Che went to the factory and told the workers that their work showed a lack of respect for the people. That's what he said. That was his way. Everything he said about our work on the biometric project was negative. Fancy him saying that our decorations given all the time we had spent and the care putting them up, he, he indicated they were garbage. Everything he said while he was here was critical. Paola said that the project was closed shortly after his visit. And she thinks that his visit probably had something directly to do with the project being closed. But now, she says, with all the years that have passed and the whole incident, it seems amusing. It's true he was very brusque. Argentine, Argentines are hard like that. But maybe he meant his comments about the decorations as a joke, but it hurt us. I was particularly upset because I always had been a sort of leader, and he offended me, and I lost my temper. Uh, so 
Paola, whose nickname is Chinita, describes herself as part Negra, part the Afro-Cuban, part Spanish, and part Chinese. So she harbors the multitudes of what it is to be Cuban. Uh, I analyzed Paola's interview with Norma Guillard, who some of you might know. Norma is a very well-known Afro-Cuban feminist, LGBT activist, Communist Party member, and a psychologist by profession. <coughs> Norma's interpretation of the incident was that when Che visited the project, he had come because he thought the ideas were absolutely daft, what he'd heard about before, that it was pseudoscience rather than <coughs> science, that it was social Darwinism, and he was very aggressive in his language because he thought that he'd come across something that shouldn't be happening in Cuba. Uh, Paola was a young mestiza at the university, probably har harboring feelings of inferiority, of not belonging at the University of Havana, and that when Che asked what she was doing there, she took it to mean she took his uh, question to mean, why are you here, rather than to mean, tell me what you, kind of research you're doing. My interpretation, uh, looking at Che the man and drawing on this one incident, this one recollection in oral history, is that unlike Fidel, Che did not have a popular touch. Uh, many older people that we interviewed remembered Fidel as working the crowds, hugging people, dropping into people's homes. People said they loved him like a father or grandfather and talked about their personal connection with him. This is older people, not younger people. Um, from these stories, I have the feeling that Fidel would not have gone to the biometric project uh, and behaved in the way uh, Che did. Che was certainly not a populist. He was not a populist politician. He was a, not a populist of any kind. He was not a chatterer. He was not a flatterer. He was a serious uh, revolutionary and an ideologue. And if Paola's anecdote bears any resemblance to what happened in the biometric laboratory that day, and with oral history, you always have to ask that question, Che was seems to have been indifferent to what the researchers at the laboratory thought of him. He knew what he was, you know, wanted to, he knew why he was there, uh, and he didn't waste any time messing around indicating why he was there. And I think we would probably all agree that he was right that the research was daft and the project should be closed. Uh, if Paola's memory is right, and this we don't know, Che did not take women at the laboratory as seriously as men. He did not, according to her, engage them in discussion about the project. In short, he was a sexist. And there's nothing new here either. Che's new man was very much a man. So how truthful is Paola's story? I would say that it embodies the truths of oral history, that all narrators reshape their memories, alter their life stories, consciously and unconsciously, to suit their purposes. And Paola was doing this. So we need to balance this with 
what she tells us happened in the laboratory that day. It is just half a century since I was spending a weekend in Santa Cruz de la Sierra, the main city in the east of Bolivia. I've been traveling around the country for a couple of months, writing articles for the Guardian, and helping to prepare a television film for the Granada program, World in Action. On the Saturday, October the 7th, exactly the same that year as it is this year, I had gone to visit the American training base at La Esperanza, a deserted sugar mill some 30 kilometers north of the town. We were introduced to the American commander, Major Pappy Shelton, who explained that he had been winding up his work there. He'd been there for the past six months with 20 US soldiers, the Green Berets, and they had been training some 600 Bolivian conscripts who had just been sent up from the sugar mill to the guerrilla front on the slopes of the Andes at Valle Grande. On the following day, Sunday, October the 8th, we were sitting in a cafe in the main square of Santa Cruz when one of the American officers came by and said, I have got news for you. The man you are looking for has been captured. He is wounded and he may not last the night. The nearest town to the guerrilla zone was Valle Grande, some five or six hours away. We would have to find a jeep driver prepared to drive us in the darkness through the night. We arrived at Valle Grande on Monday, October the 9th, today, at nine in the morning, and there we had to stop. We were strictly forbidden to drive on to La Higuera, the village where Che was being detained, and we stayed in Valle Grande all day, hearing rumors about the condition of Che, until eventually the Bolivian commander-in-chief flew in at midday, this was General Ovando, to tell us definitively that Guevara was dead. We hung around at the airstrip outside the town, where the corpses of various dead soldiers were being flown in from La Iguera by helicopter. Eventually, at five o'clock in the evening, one last helicopter ar arrived, bringing in a single body lashed to the landing rails. The body was placed in a small van and taken off to the grounds of the local hospital. We followed closely and observed how a man leapt out of the van crying in English, let's get the hell out of here. We had seen him earlier in the day and he had been identified to us as one of two men in the guerrilla zone who had been deployed by the CIA. He was, it seemed to us, probably a Cuban exile, as was true. When we asked him where he came from, he replied, from nowhere. The body in the van was transferred to a makeshift table made up in a laundry hut. 
and we got our first sight of the dead gorilla. From the very first moment, I had absolutely no doubt that this was the body of Che Guevara. I had met him almost exactly four years earlier in the gardens of the Soviet embassy in Havana. He was much thinner and his hair was longer and more unkempt, but this was undoubtedly Guevara. My friend Christopher Roper, the Reuter correspondent, quoted me to this effect in his own story that went around the world on the Reuters wire. And I was told later that Fidel Castro read his story in Havana and knew for certain that Guevara was dead. After half an hour or so, we slipped away from the laundry hut and found our jeep and drove back to Santa Cruz in the dark. It proved impossible to send our troops from there and I had to fly out to La Paz the next morning to use the telecommunications available there. At the airport, I was greeted by Major Pappy Shelton, the American officer who had been training the Bolivian troops, who was flying back to his headquarters in Miami. Mission accomplished, he whispered to me. My own story on the death of Guevara eventually appeared as the lead story in the Guardian on the morning of Wednesday, October the 11th. I must go back four years to my first visit to Cuba in October 1963. I was working at the time at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and I had been given many introductions to key people in the Cuban leadership, including Che Guevara. The editor of Chatham House's quarterly journal, International Affairs, had already commissioned Guevara to contribute an article on the Cuban economy. And one of my tasks in Havana was to try to pick out his article. <coughs> I had an excellent two weeks traveling all over Cuba, and I met many of the people on my list to interview. But not until my last few days was there any sign of change. Eventually, I was told that I would find him at a party that evening at the Soviet Embassy, where they would be celebrating, as we are this year, the Russian Revolution of October 1917. And Che did indeed arrive after midnight. As I have written elsewhere in my history of Cuba, he was wearing his trademark black beret, and with his shirt open to the waist, he was unbelievably beautiful. As he came down the stone steps of the embassy garden, he had the unmistakable aura of a rock star. People stopped whatever they were doing and just stared at the revolution made flesh. I asked him, of course, if he'd written the article I had come to collect. <laughs> no, he said rather crossly. It was not yet finished. He would send it via the embassy. And indeed, it did arrive in London a few weeks later. Everyone in the embassy garden gathered round to hear what he had to say. Russian diplomats, Cubans, and foreign visitors from Europe and Latin America. And I have not much memory, 50 years later, of what was discussed. 
But I do recall him talking about the importance for Latin America of the Cuban Revolution. And that is certainly the story that has remained with me. In the half century that has elapsed since the death of Che, research has continued unabated into almost every aspect of his life. Even in the 21st century, books and articles based on original investigations have regularly appeared. Friends and relations have been interviewed. Hitherto untapped archives in several countries have been opened up. And over time, the focus of Guevara researches has subtly changed from an emphasis on guerrilla warfare during the early years to the pioneering work on these economic theories in Cuba, so skillfully outlined by Edmund Gaffier, and to the Latin American strategy revealed in his Bolivian expedition with the Argentine dimension brilliantly told by the late Ciro Bustos, the Peruvian aspect illuminated by Jan Rus and Drukrit, and the African story given fresh relevance in the hands of Piero Gaijeses. As a result of this fresh work, it is now possible to suggest that Guevara's legacy must now be seen in the same light as that of Simon Bolivar, Jose Marti, and Hugo Chavez, and of course of Fidel himself. As all these great men argued, Latin American unity is the one essential ingredient in any anti-imperial project. Che Guevara fought under the same banner. Thank you. Topic, and I'm just going to dive straight in there. It's nothing else I can do. I would normally give you the economic history context. Cuba is a semi-colony of the United States, dominated by trade, naturally dominated by sugar. There's no time for any of that. So, Che was the Minister of Industries in Cuba between 1961 and 65, and he set up something called the Budgetary Finance System, which I'm going to refer to as the BFS to save a little bit of time. Um, that was a unique system of economic management for the transition to socialism. So it was different from what existed in all the other socialist bloc countries. And that was the result, I argue, of three lines of inquiry. First, the study of Marx's analysis of the capitalist system, and also Marx's earlier works, more philosophical works. Secondly, Che and Cuba's engagement with socialist political economy debates of the time. And third, and perhaps most surprisingly, recourse to the technological advances of the capitalist, of advanced capitalist corporations. So prior to the um, starting as the Minister of Industry, Che was the head of the Department of Industrialization in a country that had never had any institute uh, similar. And he was the president of the National Bank in a period when all financial institutions and 84% of industry were nationalized for the first time. And that's no coincidence. Che was pivotal to that process. So Cuba had an unbalanced trade-dependent economy dominated by foreign interests, particularly from the United States. 
And the production units in this process of nationalisation that passed under his jurisdiction in the Department of Industrialisation ranged from artisan workshops to very sophisticated energy plants. Many of them faced bankruptcy, while others were highly profitable. And Guevara had a solution to deal with this, which was twofold. First, to group entities of similar lines of production into centralised administrative bodies, which he called consolidated enterprises. And this allowed the department to control the allocation of scarce administrative and technical personnel following the exodus of between 65 to 75% of managers, technicians and engineers after 1959. So the people who ran the country effectively left the country. And second, his other approach was to centralise the finances of all production units into one bank account for the payment of salaries to control investment and sustain production in essential industries which lacked financial uh, resources. So this move to centralisation is a pragmatic move initially. February 1961, the Ministry of Industries was established with Che Guevara as minister and the budgetary finance system was developed. And the BFS evolved into a comprehensive apparatus which embedded these organisational structures I've just mentioned, but within a Marxist theoretical framework in order to foster Cuba's industrialisation, increase productivity and institutionalise collective management. And this has gone into in great detail in my book. Okay, advanced technology. So Guevara set up the BFS with compañeros who understood the internal accounting practices, administrative centralization and productive concentration of the US corporations and their subsidiaries in Cuba. He personally got that documentation during the nationalization process and looked through it to work out how they were operating when they fell into state hands. He was impressed with their management structures, the use of centralised bank accounts and budgets, determinate levels of responsibility and decision-making, and departments for organisation and inspection, something that didn't exist under the Soviet system. He told colleagues that the BFS had an accounting system similar to the pre-1959 monopolies operating in Cuba with their efficient control systems. And I quote, it's not important who invented the system. The accounting system that they apply in the Soviet Union was also invented under capitalism. Guevara had first travelled to the USSR in 1916. He visited an electronics factory which did accounts using abacus. So having studied the US-owned Cuban electric uh, company, Shell, Texaco, and other corporations which used the latest IBM machines, he was struck by the backwardness of the Soviet techniques. He believed that the advances achieved by humanity should be adopted without fear of uh, ideological contamination. Another example is cybernetics. With the imposition of the US blockade, Cuba was forced to buy factories from the socialist countries, especially the USSR. This assistance was essential, but the relative backwardness of the equipment clashed with his ideas, his desire for advanced technology transfers. He didn't criticise the Soviets for this backwardness per se. Rather, he complained about the contradiction between the high level of research and development in military technology and low investment applied to civilian production. He 
objected to the ideological resistance to appropriating advances made in the capitalist world. It was a costly mistake, he said, in terms of development and international competitiveness. So for Che, basing a management system on, for socialist transition on capitalist technology was actually consistent with Marx's stages theory of history, which predicted that communism would emerge from the fully developed capitalist mode of production. Marx showed how the tendency to the con concentration of capital, that is monopoly, is inherent in the system. Therefore, monopoly form of capitalism was more advanced than perfect competition, which is anyway a myth. Um, the Soviet system originated from the predominantly underdeveloped pre-monopoly capitalism. A socialist economic management system emerging from monopoly capitalism could be more advanced, efficient and productive. The origin of the BFS was the multinational corporations in pre-1959 Cuba, and it was therefore more progressive than the Soviet, what was called in Cuba the auto-financing system, which had, uh, was adapted from pre-monopoly Russian capitalism. So while Che argued for the adoption of advanced technology, he opposed the use of capitalist mechanisms to determine production and consumption. He challenged the Soviets' reliance on capitalist categories. What do we mean by that? Competition, profit, material incentives, credit, and interest to organize the socialist economy. These you can refer to as the law of value. This is a question about the operation of the law of value. The dispute about the law of value in transition economies is central to the question about the feasibility of constructing socialism in a country an underdeveloped country, a country without a fully de uh, developed capitalist mode of production. It's integral to the problems of accumulation, production, distribution, and social relations. Communism, put simply, implies a highly productive society in which the conditions exist for distribution of the social product based on need and not surplus generating labor time. However, the countries which had experimented with socialism have been underdeveloped. They lacked the productive base for the material abundance implied by communism. The Soviet solution was to rely on the operation of the law of value to hasten the development of the productive forces, applying the profit motive, interest, credit, individual material incentives, uh, incentives and elements of competition to promote efficiency and innovations. Guevara argued that these were not the only levers for fostering development. The budgetary finance system was the expression of his search for an apparatus to increase productive capacity and labour productivity without relying on capitalist mechanisms which undermine the formation of a new consciousness and social relations integral to communism. Between 1963 and 1965, these questions were uh, examined in Cuba during what was called the Great Debate on Socialist Transition. In February 1964, Guevara concluded, as a complete rejection of the Soviet model, uh, quote, we deny the possibility of consciously using the law of value, basing our argument on the absence of a free market and that automatically expresses the contradiction between producers and consumers. The law of value and planning are two terms linked by a contradiction and its resolution. I don't have time to discuss it 
now, but this is a debate that continues in Cuba with the process of economic reforms underway, the balance between the market, market forces, and central state planning. For Guevara, centralized planning was the fundamental characteristic of socialist society. He conceded only, quote, the possibility of using elements of the law of value for comparative purposes, that's cost, profit, expressed in monetary terms, so it would just help you see you know, how productive your uh, units were, your production was. The protagonists in Cuba were well informed about the broader debate on incentives and financial autonomy contemporaneously underway in the Eastern European socialist countries. Those debates were a response to problems of economic stagnation, low productivity and efficiency, particularly in comparison with the economic growth underway in the developed capitalist world. Commenting on the push to liberalise, I put in inverted commas, the socialist economies, Guevara said, the theory is failing because they have forgotten Marx. Instead of capital, he said, the Soviet manual of political economy had been turned into a Bible. Now Marx characterised the psychological or physiological a philosophical, sorry, manifestation of capitalist social relations as alienation and antagonism. The result of the commodification of labour and operation of the law of value. For Guevara, the challenge was to replace the individual's alienation from the productive process and antagonism generated by class relations with integration and solidarity developing a collective attitude to production and the concept of work as a social duty. And I think that's really important to state because uh, Che has been really stylized or um, caricatured as be, you know, being someone who would go out to the fields at five o'clock on a Sunday morning after working all week uh, in promoting sort of voluntarism as if it was a test of your character when actually it was the way that he understood it was necessary to get around the commodification of labour power, which is that you only work because you're paid to do so. Okay, I'm finishing now. Um, so capitalist competition creates the drive to increase productivity through technological innovations and increasing exploitation. Alienation and antagonism increase with productivity. Under socialism, the development of the productive forces could be less accelerated, said Che, but it should be accompanied by the growth of consciousness. That was the role that Che put in consciousness. Not, you can't understand it in the abstract without the economic aspect. Guevara's, uh, for Guevara, efforts to change consciousness must be incorporated into socialist transition at the earliest stage. Um, final sentence, in Cuba his analysis was revisited in the mid-1980s in a period known as rectification where uh, the island pulled away from the Soviet model before the Soviet bloc collapsed and arguably that contributed to the survival of human socialism. Thank you. In this brief uh, presentation, I'm going to focus more on Che's legacy and the myth that surrounds it around at the level of, of images. Um, so in 2010, I published an article comparing uh, three different graphic biographies of Che Guevara, the three on the top, um, though I've added a few other ones there at the bottom. Um, I was interested in the way that the three biographies presented Che's life and how they explored and contributed to the process of myth-making that surrounded Che after his death. 
And I suggested there that comics are rich for reflecting on the symbolic meaning of chi and have the possibility of introducing alternatives to the static <coughs> reliance on one famous photograph. In visual terms, Che is most famous as the subject of Corder's photograph, an image that circulated in viral fashion and in many different iterations. It provides a sort of ready visual template for Che, capturing and reproducing the heroic qualities that are cited in the name of the photograph itself. Uh, and, and at some level, I think the dominance of that image is symbolic of the way in which, uh, perhaps too often, the myth of Che is caught between romantic champion of the left or hate figure for the right. Of all the works that I looked at, I still feel that the most challenging was the Argentine publication La Vida del Che, now sometimes simply called Che, which was written by um, Hector Germán Oestagel and drawn by Alberto Breccia and his son Enrique. The work is remarkable, first of all, because it was published so soon after Che's death, right in the midst of a military dictatorship. It went on sale in January 1968, barely three months after the death of Che. So therefore, the first graphic biography, as far as I'm aware, anyway, of, of the guerrilla. Um, and the speed with which the work was produced pays testament to the militant nature of these comics producers and their connections to the left. The graphic biography at that time claimed a political potential for comics, highlighting the fusion of art and politics, which was the battleground of Argentine culture production in 1968. La Vida de Che is probably uh, more culpable than the others of constructing a heroic narrative around Guevara, not least at the expense, I think, of the Bolivian peasants who mistrusted the guerrilla forces and who are presented uh, staring blankly at the viewer, their mouths turned down, accompanied by text that states, "He never speaks to the peasants. Uh, sorry, he speaks to the peasants, explains to them, but why? Always the indifferent, empty eyes." The work was originally conceived as two separate individual biographies, but eventually became two interspersed narrative sequences as a consequence of a last-minute editorial decision. Enrique Breccia's son drew the sequences set during Che's last campaign in Bolivia, and Alberto Fava drew the biographical sequences that take the reader from Che's birth through to his trip to the Congo. So the different aesthetic approach taken by father and son, um, father on the top, son on the bottom, Enrique relying on uh, negative type images with large areas of black, bold shapes and stylized faces, and Alberto using more detailed pictures occasionally combined with shapes, drawing on design technology, forces the reader to engage with the narratives as both separate and complementary. So at the level of image, the work recognizes that there are different ways of visually narrating Che, maybe because they are free to explore the visual world of drafting Che without the burden of Corda's image. Um, and I think it was this in particular, which I didn't necessarily explain too well when I originally wrote that article, what which is the thing that makes comics particularly interesting. It's that level of drawing. Because drawing allows us to grasp a less indexical relationship to the past and to a rather different set of imaginaries of revolution and their rendition in the present. Drawn images which can exaggerate certain qualities and discard others can disrupt the visual of a photograph and unsettle our expectations. There are some other examples. But there's also, of course, another famous drawn image of Che, one that predates all of the other ones that I've shown. In 1967, following his capture by the Bolivian army, 
Shortly after leaving Chase Camp alongside Regis de Bray, Ciro Bustos, um, mentioned by Richard, an Argentine who died in January this year, was subject to sustained interrogation during which parts of his cover story were peeled away. One thing that Bustos mentioned, though, was the fact that he was a painter. So Bustos interrogated this, believing him, instructed him to, as in Bustos's words, draw something, damn it, draw a gorilla. Bustos writes in his biography, I drew a gorilla who looked more like a tramp. The impact was as instantaneous as the image was useless. The power of the virtual was more real than the bloody actions they'd taken part in. Managing more than just a coincidental likeness would be a miracle anyway, and that voted well for me. A good draftsman can repeat from memory a face he's drawn numerous times, but he cannot make a faithful copy of faces that rush in and out of his memory in chaotic situations. I drew what they might find recognizable. Beards, a certain look, recognizable features. The order was not important. One thing I find striking about Bustos's images, of which there are quite a number, I think maybe between sort of around ten, um, is his eye for detail, the grace, I think, of some of his drawings, and the care with which he appears to have created them. What is a faithful drawing, after all, other than one that contains certain recognizable features? A drawing isn't a mimetic copy, but one that exaggerates certain qualities and eliminates others. He also said, drawing Che would be both risable, pretending the drawings were a weapon against the gorilla is nothing more than that, and a commitment, not only of memory, but also of emotion. The drawing was a rough sketch. The important thing was not the outward appearance, but the inner strength, which I was unable to capture. It looked more like a hungry poet and bore no resemblance to Ramon or to what he represented. Yet he was considered the success of the gorilla drawings. At first glance, the drawing of Che might appear to be a poor likeness, but on closer inspection there are elements that do bear actually quite a close resemblance to Che. The muscular forehead, for example, um, clearly evident in Bustos's image, was one of the physical traits used to determine Che's false identity as a Uruguayan businessman, where he, uh, which he used to enter Bolivia, as you can see in this official file, with the, with the drawing in the middle, and the um, forehead circled at the top right. I find it interesting that Bustos critiques his own drawing not just for its failure to look like Ramon, but for what it failed to capture as far as he saw it in terms of his inner strength or what he represented. And this reminded me of Michael Taussig's reflections on drawings in his work, I Swear I Saw This, Drawings in Fieldwork Notebooks, namely my own, not least his observation that drawing, I quote, is a seeing that doubts itself, and beyond that, doubts the world of man. He adds, could it be that the photograph is implicitly assumed to be a magical way of capturing the spirit of the dead, while the drawing is understood to be but a timid approximation, offering no more than a squint-eyed view, such that unlike the photograph, it cannot so easily be appropriated for sympathetic magic? This is an interesting point, I think, if we reflect on the magic that circulates around Corder's photograph, which would be praised precisely for capturing the heroic spirit of the freedom fighter. I think there's also a relationship to be drawn in terms of drawing and photography to the difficulty of the left of processing the revolutionary past and the armed struggle of the 1960s and 70s. After all, Bustos refers in his book to a letter written to him by the Argentine Oscar de Barico in which the, in which the philosopher encouraged him in the face of criticism. Your arguments are valid, rationally valid, but the left, that left, is not interested in rationality. They would rather you die and not come out alive. Del Barco sparked a polemic debate in 2004 
following the publication of a, of a letter he wrote to the magazine L'Independier in response to an interview with Hector Jouet, a member of the ill-fated campaign overseen by Che and headed by Jorge Massetti to start a guerrilla insurrection in Salta in 1964. Jouet recounted how two members of the group were summarily executed by their peers, actions that Del Barco said in 2004 should form no part of any group, arguing that the principle of coexistence is no mataraz. Bustos was a member of that same guerrilla group, invited to take part by Che himself. He later wrote in his autobiography that the execution of the 19-year-old Nardo by the order of Massetti meant that, quote, the fascist mentality had triumphed and struck another fatal blow to our liberating utopia. Whether you agree with Bustos or not, what I think the drawings out of this discussion is precisely the notion of a past that shouldn't be fixed in or around one image. The drawing pushes against such fixity, and multiple drawings on the same subject only exaggerate the possibility of variations around a single theme. As Tausig writes, the drawings and notebooks that I have in mind seem to me to butt against realism with its desire for completeness. In pointing away from the real, they capture something invisible and erratic that makes the thing depicted worth depicting. And it's that, I think, that makes these drawn images of Che important for reflecting on his legacy. So my research was on the role of violence uh, in Che's revolutionary thinking and his praxis. So essentially, how he thought about violence, how he practiced violence, what role did it occupy in his overall ideology. So the reason why I wanted to do this is because I was really frustrated by the way if violence is discussed with Che Guevara popularly and historiography. So as one historian has said, on the one hand, you have the Che lovers, in a sense, people mostly on the left sometimes who will just uh, downplay the role of violence, downplay uh, any killings that he might have ordered, any thoughts he might have had about violence, uh, torture, and so on. And of course, you have a lot more uh, the Che haters uh, who obviously talk about Che being a sadistic killer, a tyrant enjoying to kill, murder, homosexual boys, blacks, everyone you can imagine. If you go on social media today, under every article on uh, Che Guevara, you will find this exact comment. So what I wanted to find was how did he actually think of that in uh, an unbiased manner. Especially since, as I found, he occupied a pretty important place in his level of thinking. And he did say, of course, he was a guerrilla fighter. But it's not just about war and conflict, which is something, as Richard said, that uh, researchers have uh, looked into it a lot, how has, well, he's thinking of warfare, his whole strategy and all that. But we must look at violence beyond just the war. We must look at, you know, actually doing harm, which also takes place outside the battlefield, and it did take place for Che uh, after uh, the war in the Sierra, in the fortress of La Cabana, and of course in his later campaigns. So it was important for him. He's, he said that True revolutionaries should not fear violence, which is the midwife of new societies. So the real question is, how did he actually try to justify violence? Why was violence to be used in the first place? So the first reason in his thinking was that, and it's quite straightforward, violence should be used to fight violence. So what he has always said is that given the oppression of the regime, given how the 
Batista troops, for example, would uh, murder and kill their own troops and the rebels. Uh, then they had to do the same. It was a sort of self-defense which uh, justified violence. And indeed, as one researcher says, it is having been a victim that justifies violence and skillful victimizers know this full well. So in his guerrilla warfare, Chuck clarifies that terrorism should be employed only when the end is to put to death some noted leader of the oppressing forces, well known for his cruelty and efficiency in repression. And even though acknowledging that terrorism could be counterproductive, um, he said that, uh, in a sense, rebels were forced to act violently in order to respond to the flagrant abuses committed by Batista's dictatorship. So there was a case of uh, Chicho Osorio, who was a, a foreman in uh, the Sierra, worked at the family state, and people said that he uh, maintained the regime of terror. So he said that it was the moment they realized who he was that he had eventually signed his own death sentence. But it wasn't, as I said, just in the Sierra. He continued with the same line of thinking about violence being necessary in a sense of self-defense, even after that, and especially when the main enemy was not Batista, but the United States. Uh, so, in his speech to the United Nations, he openly proclaimed that in Cuba, yes, we shoot people, we have shot people, and we shall continue to shoot people as long as it is necessary, claiming that it was necessary precisely because they had to protect themselves and the revolution. It was a struggle to the death whose conditions had been imposed, not by them, but on, our, on them by U.S. imperialism. But there was another reason, again, pretty straightforward, why violence was justified. And it was all about to do with furthering the revolutionary cause. The physical elimination of uh, all the counter-revolutionaries and all the enemies had to be swift and publicized to ensure the, the establishment and control of a liberated territory, not just in the Sierra, but later on uh, in the Congo and Bolivia, even though uh, this didn't really go according to plan. Chess saw the use and the threat of violence as being important in order to ensure the consolidation of the base, particularly when it was being contested by enemy forces, uh, in which case the, violent, the use of violence, he said, should be high. Collaborators, spies, traitors, enemy soldiers should be the guerrillas' main, target, main targets during this, during this period. And again, we can think of uh, a wave of executions in the Sierra in 1957, when it was exactly what they were doing, putting to death uh, criminals, uh, torturers, and uh, other uh, spies, and whoever was a supporter of the Batista regime, and also uh, what they did in La Cabana. But there was a further dimension why violence was justified, and this is what we could think of the Latin um, uh, motto, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. He said that uh, violence is not only a necessity for the people of Cuba, but also an imposition by the people. It's not to say that uh, Che thought that revolutionaries were mere instruments of the people's will. Violence was kind of the name of the people and almost acquired divine proportions, which is something that uh, Zizek has seen, for example, in the case of uh, the French Revolution, how the great terror of Robespierre had this divine uh, the heroic assumption of a sovereign decision. And indeed, Che theory was that the guerrilla fighter was the vanguard, the sort of guiding agent for the people, standard bearer, bearer who punishes every betrayal uh, with justice. And this is something he really explained in his uh, guerrilla warfare. 
and he actually believed that it was this kind of swift revolutionary justice, currently the name of the people, that had proved instrument, instrumental in generating popular support uh, for his calling in the Sierra by, by eliminating the notorious criminals uh, who were despised for their cruelty. They had produced a warm camaraderie and spontaneous support by the, by the peasants who recognized the guerrilla's invisibility. And again, he says that this was the reason why all the uh, executions were carried in La Cabana, transferring his experiences from the microcosm of the Sierra to the revolutionary state upon his conclusion. He later remarked in a speech after he finished his uh, period in La Cabana that the executions were expressed from the lips of the people and that it was exactly those executions that had made Cuba a truly popular and democratic regime, as opposed to states like Venezuela at the time, which had ignored the use of the firing squads and had proved that they were nothing more than pseudo-democracies controlled by the military and US imperialism. Therefore, violence and the willingness to use it for Che was a defining characteristic, in a sense, of a genuinely revolutionary group and a popular state and he said that it should play a crucial role in any revolution uh, which wanted to bring the rebels and the masses closer together. And then there is this whole concept that uh, I used called the continuum of violence, which has mainly been used as a concept of the continuum of sexual violence, uh, which argues that there are similarities in the different, there are similarities that different forms of abuse committed against women, that violence against women is a significant part of their everyday lives and that it has deep historical roots, for example, in the history of gender relations or the structure uh, of uh, society. So adopting that, we see that for Che, the violence in the Cuban Revolution and every revolution in Latin America, for that matter, was made necessary from the structural violence that had dominated society in Latin America ever since the 19th century. So he argued that since Cuba, Latin America was independence, violence had become the logic of social relations, manifesting itself in the inheritance qualities of class, gender, race, as well as the political violence of the regimes. So in this unbroken chain of violence of a century or so, which characterized Cuba and Latin America, Che thought it inevitable that resistance would take the form of revolutionary violence. And it was the rebels' violence, however, that would eventually succeed in breaking with this path and breaking this unbroken chain and it would eliminate the conditions that had allowed oppressive inequality to spread. And in a sense, the same uh, explanatory framework was used by Che to argue for the inescapability of using violence uh, to liberate colonial and neo-colonial states in Asia and Africa, such as the Congo, when, when he fought in the last few years of his life. So in the Congo, he said, imperialism had buried its claws resorting both to economic force that impoverished and exploited the people, and state force. And Che wrote in his account of the, of the Revolutionary War in the Congo that the key feature of society was a sort of violence that negated people as individuals, through expressed through rape, absolute poverty, economic exploitation, and even through their physical elimination. And while his troops failed to provide a sufficient remedy to the massive problems, he concluded that having tasted revolt in the end, the defeated, abused, and harassed peasantry would rise to fight a cruel and protracted war that would only end with the complete elimination of their enemies. Therefore, it was inevitable for Che, and a necessary combination 
of a shared history of exploitation and oppression which underpinned everyday life that made violence a necessary uh, recourse and essentially justified in desires. It was only by erasing the use of violence and eliminating all vestiges of the past that a truly emancipating future would emerge. And moving on, what forms did violence take for Che and what were the goals? So there is this, in his praxis and again in his writings, we see a distinction between good and bad violence. Obviously there is a distinction between the bad violence of uh, the regimes uh, and the good violence the, of the guerrillas. But there is also a further uh, dichotomy within the guerrillas themselves. So he believed that uh, even though selective terror and assaults on persons should be employed, this should only take place in special circumstances and after careful analysis. So he specifically said that indiscriminate violence should never take an indiscriminate form, otherwise it would have uh, it would be counterproductive. There was this strategic goal uh, in, in his use of violence. Of course, he was a, a rebel fighter, and he was aware that in their attempts to uncover the rebels hiding among the peasant population, the repressive forces would resort to terrorizing the peasants. So by abstaining from the use of similar methods, uh, eventually the guerrillas would stand up as a single force to ensure their survival. But of course there were moral reasons as well. And he said that violence should never be indiscriminate because that would, in a sense, show the moral superiority of uh, the rebels as opposed to the regime. And moving on, because Paolo is making gestures at me about the time, uh, with uh, just saying, uh, no, the other important thing is uh, how he discussed, he saw violence as being a purifying force. Again, it had a strategic goal. In La Cabana, purifying violence had the sense of eliminating the Batista army and all former uh, supporters of Batista. But there was also a, a moral, in a sense, a revolutionary ideological goal, uh, which we can find even, as I said, in the French Revolution and the writings of uh, Georges Sorel about how violence purifies the people and brings out the best in them and uh, illuminates their values. So for Che, this was exactly why violence should be used, because it purified, it brought about the best values of the people, and it was to be used as another method of creating the new man. Uh, so violence would break with the past and the old man and would bring the new man. But this was important in, in, in Che's thinking, as everyone else has said in the panel. Uh, when he thought about the new man, it wasn't just violence. It was also economics. It was also social thinking. So in a sense, what I eventually say is that violence was indeed an important part of his, but it was just one of many ways that he thought he would achieve the better revolutionary future, future, the new man, and the common society that he aspired to. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much to everyone. Do you want to turn back here? We have a bit of time for. Um, I thought what would be interesting would be to give you an opportunity to maybe to respond to each other's um, presentations and. Um, and, and, and maybe go, go over some of the issues that were raised. Just, just one observation, it is an observation about the comment that, that Richard Cobb made. And I agree with this comment. He compares Che Guevara with 
persons uh, like Simon Bolivar uh, or Chavez, Fidel Castro. I spent at least uh, five or six years of my life interviewing guerrilla members, ex-guerrilla members, and I remember that at least I interviewed between 20 and 30 persons who considered themselves as commandante in jefe, the several guerrilla uh, movements in Colombia, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, in Peru, uh, and of course in Cuba, but in Cuba there is only one commandante in jefe. And during these interviews, some, some of the interviews were extended over hours, others over days, some uh, some uh, uh, some interviews over over months or years. Uh, I generally asked at a certain moment, uh, could you could you you compare with Fidel Castro and 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 Che Guevara? And I remember when you made that comment that nearly all confessed that they couldn't match the qualities of Che Guevara and. And Fidel. So my my question is, uh, uh, why is Che Guevara after after uh, so many years after his death so permanently attractive? <laughs> very 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 difficult that question. Uh, I have no idea. <clears throat> he just at one moment in time seemed to encapsulate. Uh, the popular guerrilla struggle, um, which had, after all, been going on all my lifetime. I mean, the, the Chinese Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, the uh, liberation of uh, occupied Europe during the Second World War. Guerrillas were have been a fantastic uh, part of the history of the last very nearly a hundred years. Uh, and then along comes Guevara and this incredibly attractive personality, apart from his enthusiasm for violence, but that is um, by the side because we didn't know quite so much about him. Um, so yes, I'm a bit um, nonplussed by the question. Liz, you probably have an answer. No, I definitely don't have an answer, but I am very sort of... Um, I think that a lot of it is what uh, I think you, Richard, referred to, you know, his pop star quality. There's no question about that. The way he died, his age when he died, uh, his, his ideas, which were, you know, uh, he, he wasn't shy about, you know, saying what he believed. And the commercialization that's all, that it's all been put to, an enormous amount of commercialization. Um, and the and also the internationalism, you know, the idea of a uh, Latin American internationalism, where there was, uh, as uh, as you uh, point out in your book, uh, that there was a you know, tremendous effort to uh, organize Latin American groups. There was nothing spontaneous about it. These were the Cuban uh, forces going out and organizing people. So all of those things together created a very, very powerful personality. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would agree with all those things. Maybe what, I don't know, I have an answer to the question, but one thing that maybe would be interesting to look at, and I don't know, is what was his presence in the international press between, say, 1959 and his death? And how does that shift or not? I mean, how was he perceived up to the time of his death mm-hmm. as a kind of major political figure who was traveling around the world and you know was a major figure? I, that I don't know. I mean, I guess you'd have to look at his press coverage and his speeches in, in, in states and, and other places as well. Yeah, it's very important. I would say, I would say that, um, you know, Che rose up against real oppression that he saw, real exploitation and terrible racism and social injustice, and joined forces with Fidel Castro and the Cubans who were doing the same, and specifically against the Batista dictatorship, which talking of violence, as you said, left 20,000 dead. And, you know, those conditions continue to exist. In some ways, the situation in many countries in Latin America, perhaps before 2000, was worse. If you look at the rates of poverty, the inequality, the dispossession of natural resources, and the same in Africa, and the same in Asia. And so I think that's part of the attractiveness of Che Guevara, because he represents a revolutionary solution to that situation. Don't just bow your head and trudge on through your oppression. Organise, take up arms. Che Guevara said very clearly, the subjective, condi- the objective conditions for revolutionary change exist. What we need to do is to create the subjective conditions. Now, he happened to meet up with this other incredible man called Fidel Castro, who was very good at creating the subjective conditions, and hence we had the Cuban Revolution. But those objective conditions exist today. You just need to look at the statistics. Two billion people you know, who don't have safe drinking water, etc. And I think that is what accounts for the continued attractiveness of Che Guevara and the Cuban Revolution, with or without criticisms that may exist. No, just to expand on that, I mean, literally today, uh, from what I read in... Uh an event that would be taking place in Bolivia on the place where he died for his 50th that Evo Morales would proclaim like the restart of the anti-purist struggle based on change values. So it's also the fact that his, because as you said, he died young and the way he died, he became a symbol and symbols just change depending on the circumstances. And so he could be used in uh, Nicaragua, he could be used in Mexico in the 1990s, he was used in so many places in the 60s and 70s always changing, but always people have, as you said, essentially, uh, these uh, characteristics in mind, these basic features of the symbol. Um, well, I completely agree with you, Helen, about the uh, conditions of existence and exploitation, but I would like to, I reviewed uh, Dirk's book, and the most powerful uh, conclusion, and the thing that I remember the best about a very good book, is that uh, Dirk says that uh, Che and Fidel's, but the idea of foquismo, the idea of this revolutionary, you know, in the mountains who takes up arms against the regime, has never succeeded except in Cuba. It's the only place it succeeded. 
every place else it was a dramatic failure. So I don't know if Dirk wants to speak more about that. But I don't think we should romanticize that these uh, revolutionary Fouquista-type movements are solving the problems of the, the, the wretched of the earth. They are not. Dirk, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Well, I'm not a philosopher, or, or, or I'm, I'm, my comfort zone is when I can conclude about what others tell. But uh, yes, uh, there, is, there, is, there is a famous dictum of Trotsky that uh, considering the objective conditions for revolutions, we all would have been communist, but tragically it didn't succeed. It, uh, 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 and, and yes, of course, there, 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 there is the tendency that, 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 uh, to, to think about don't pull your hair, resist, rebel, uh, go against the, the, the current, and, and all those, those, those hardish characteristics of, of, of the Czech Republic prevail in its complete, uh, complex image of a revolutionary saint and hero. Uh, but the tragic conclusion is that with the only exception of, 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 of Cuba and maybe Nicaragua, but Nicaragua explicitly after they, 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 they concluded that Google doesn't have incentives, it, uh, at least in Central America, at, at, at least in Latin America. But so far... We don't want to wish Nicaragua on anybody, mm. certainly not on the Nicaraguans. <laughs> of course, the thing is that only had to be successful once, in a way. And you know, I mean, I don't think, as as Richard said, you know, there's a kind of shift in what is interesting about Che over the last fifty years. People aren't looking at Che or reading his guerrilla warfare manual necessarily as a mode of resistance. Mm. It's not functioning mm. anymore on that kind of level. It's more at the level of symbolism, iconography, and and that sort of thing, which I think is more significant. And you know, I, I think that that's where that's where the power lies, not not as a kind of manual for yeah. for fighting. Yeah, for a start, if you look at the level of surveillance that exists, you know, it would never work anymore because the, the guerrilla fighters would give away their location with their mobile phones. <laughs> so I, that's not the point I was making. I was making a point that he represents the fact that there is still a major issue to solve, and that is the oppression and exploitation of a vast number of humanity. Um, I just want to say, um, in relation to your talk, Liz, uh, the anecdotes, I interviewed, I did some over 70 interviews with um, over 50 of the people who worked closest with Che, mainly in the economic sphere, uh, many of them had never given interviews before. Some of them have since um, died. So uh, men and women, I have to say, women who you know, absolutely felt that they were treated with real respect and, and as equals by Che. So, you know, different perspectives. But there are some absolutely wonderful anecdotes. Uh, so many. And, the, you know, um, I've always promised that one day I'll go back through my interviews and pull out all the the fun anecdotes and put, write them up in a book. But the fact that you can go to Cuba, I remember the first interview I did for my research when I was going to interview a man called Orlando Borrego, who was Che's deputy for the whole period from the Cabana to when Che left. Um, and I told the taxi driver 
that I was doing this interview. And of course, he met Shane when he was 13 or 14. And in some ways, you can sort of laugh it off and dismiss it. But in another, it is testimony to the engagement that the leadership of the Cuban Revolution had with ordinary Cubans. They actually had a rule that everyone in the um, sort of administrative and management level in the Ministry of Industries had to go to a workplace, a farm, a production unit, a factory, a scientific institute once a week to do a factory visit and you know to find out how things were going on the ground. So you know that that is part of the reason we meet so many people who really do have these experiences. They're not all made up. Well, thank you all for coming. I thought that was a very, very good session. It's a long time since I've thought so much about Che Guevara, and it is rather extraordinary that he still has such a hold over people. I do think that his early death certainly helped his image. It's rather like if you think who is the most memorable Beatle is John Lennon because he was uh, murdered the others once died the others survived but they don't have that sort of cosmic relevance that uh, John Lennon has and Che Guevara has thank you